Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. A few weeks ago, I invited the world-famous Egyptologist David Roll on the program, and toward the end of our conversation, I asked whether he had ever thought about issues related to the history and chronology of the New Testament. To my surprise, he had. Dr. Roll then began sharing some of the research he had done into what he thinks is the true location of Golgotha, the place of Jesus' crucifixion. And as he outlined his view, I soon discovered that he and I had a great deal in common. For a few years ago, I too had looked into this issue closely and had arrived at nearly the same conclusion, which is that the traditional understanding of both the site of Jesus' crucifixion and the meaning of the word Golgotha are mistaken. And since it's now Passion Week, I decided to invite Dr. Roll back to discuss these issues in more detail. So the first question I put to Dr. Roll relates to issues I've been addressing over the past few months. Since many liberal scholars over the centuries have essentially thought of the Jesus story as a kind of folktale that evolved over time, I wondered what had convinced him that the gospel narratives were in fact rooted in real historical events with a concrete geography that could be explored. Well, there's so much really going for it. If you analyze the original gospels and the descriptions in there, both of the geography of the city of Jerusalem, the location of the temple, there are hints in there of where these events are taking place. Plus the little details, all those things convince me that it's very accurately portrayed what was going on in that time. Isn't it a shame that scholars dismiss the biblical text as nothing more than a fairy story? Yeah. So there's not a lot of detail in, say, uh, the Hansel and Gretel story as the children are running into the forest. Nothing like uh, there is by the sheep gate of the temple, a place with five porticos. Nothing like that, no. right? <laughs> no, but when you when you look at the actual evidence in Jerusalem itself and compare it to the, the New Testament, you find it matches beautifully. Yeah. And, and why do they treat other ancient documents with respect, but not the Bible? So the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion is understood to be at the location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Why are you convinced that this location is incorrect? 
many reasons, really. The, um, the most important one, I think, is that it's behind the temple. It's uh, If you look at the temple's orientation, it faces to the sunrise, and the Holy Sepulchre is behind it. Now, that's important from a point of view of many different things. Not least of all was the fact that we have the temple curtain being destroyed or torn in two at the point when Jesus dies on the cross. Now, that's really impossible to see from the back of the, the temple. Right. There was a curtain at the front of the facade, as well as the one uh, separating the Holy Holies from the rest of the temple. Yeah, Josephus describes two curtains. Exactly right. There were two. There was one hanging on, hanging on the facade of the temple, and you can't see that from behind the temple, which is where the Holy Sepulchre is located. And you also couldn't see the other one in the inside of the sanctuary from any location. You'd have to be in the temple to see that one. So the only one that anyone could have seen and responded to was the one outside on the front of the door. Correct. And it seems to be that the people witnessing the crucifixion were the ones who saw the temple curtain tearing in two. Yeah. In fact, Mark's gospel actually has the centurion, when the temple curtain rips, he notices it and says, surely this is the son of God. Right. And that also is obviously a major clue as to exactly where the crucifixion site was, which we'll get into, I'm sure. But no, I think that... um, Helena, when she came to visit on her pilgrimage, was just told a small story, basically, um, about the the location where the Holy Sepulchre is today. Also, I think the crucifixion site and the the tomb of Jesus are far too close together mm-hmm. in the Holy Sepulchre. They need to be further apart than that. Yeah. Plus, it would be um, wouldn't it be weird for a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin to carve out a new tomb so close to sort of a Roman execution site? Exactly correct, yes. And in a quarry site, apparently. So it doesn't make sense to me at all. Uh, And that goes, of course, also to the other site that's uh, usually proclaimed as the the site of Jesus' tomb and also the crucifixion site. And that is the the site that um, Gordon Calvary, you know, where Charles Gordon was looking out across from the northern part of uh, Jerusalem near the Damascus Gate and, and saw this skull feature in the cliff face there, right. uh, just where the modern um, bus station is today. And he saw this skull there and he thought, oh, Golgotha, it must be the location of where the, the execution took place and the tomb must be nearby. So we have the advocates of the garden tomb very close by to that, um, which is the so-called other tomb of Jesus. I think that also does not belong in the real history at all. And that's on the northern side, I think? The northern side, again, you would not be able to see the temple curtain being torn from there either. Though the garden tomb is a well-known tourist attraction for visitors to Israel, it actually dates to around 800 years before the time of Christ, which simply doesn't fit the language of three of the four Gospels which say that Joseph of Arimathea had placed Jesus in a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So neither of those sites make any sense to me. And the word Golgotha is interesting, isn't it? Because um, people misunderstand it, I think. You know, Golgotha is an ancient Aramean word, and it seems to be, yes, it does mean skull, but it also means cranium. It doesn't have to be a skull. And our other name, Calvary, that we use is from the Latin Calvaria, which is a translation of the Greek cranium, and that also means cranium. So we shouldn't be looking for a skull at all. We should be looking for a hill with the the shape of the top of the head, basically, a cranium shape. That's where the site of Golgotha is located. Now, this point may be difficult to grasp for most English readers of the New Testament, since all our versions essentially translate Golgotha as the place of the skull. 
But both the Aramaic word Golgotha and the Greek word kranion, used in the Gospel accounts, have more than one meaning. As I looked into this myself, I discovered that when these words were translated into other languages, it was generally rendered with equivalents of the word head rather than skull. And, of course, when you translate that word head into Hebrew, we have the word rosh. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one place only is mentioned in the environs of Jerusalem, which is rosh, and that is the Mount of Olives. Yeah, last time we spoke, you mentioned the scene recorded in 2 Samuel 15 as David is ascending the Mount of Olives. Talk about that. Exactly. Well, David is fleeing from Absalom's army. Uh, and he goes he goes towards the Jordan Valley. So he's actually described as climbing up the Mount of Olives. When he reaches the head, the Rosh, at the top of the Mount of Olives. The summit. Yeah, the summit, exactly. That's what is usually how it's translated. But the word actually means head mm-hmm. in, in Hebrew. So there we have a word which is a cranium, a head, a, a Rosh. And that seems to be the place what we're referring to when we go to the New Testament and we start to hear about this word Calvary. Yeah, the place of the head could mean the place of the peak, the top, the summit. Yeah. And the thing that I find fascinating about that Second Samuel passage is David arrives at the top of the Mount of Olives. In Hebrew, it's the Rosh, but in the Greek Septuagint, it's not translated into a Greek equivalent, meaning summit, it's just transliterated into Rosh in Greek. Yes, exactly. Kind of indicating to me that it's the name of the place by that time. Precisely correct. Also, it was the place where the head count took place. Mm. So when the population census of Jerusalem was taken, people would walk up uh, to the summit, to the head of the Mount of Olives, to be counted, head counted, and then returning to the city. So it has multiple meanings, and they all are att- attracted to this idea of Rosh meaning head mm-hmm. is an actual place rather than simply a description. Now, the last time we spoke, you started off by talking about the location of Solomon's temple, yeah, uh, which, according to Second Samuel 24, was built on a threshing floor. How is that relevant to our discussion? Well, it's all about the Dome of the Rock. If you go into the Dome of the Rock, there's this rocky crag in the center of it. It's not flat at all. It's it's maybe eight or nine feet tall. It's got lots of holes and crevices in it. It's not a place you would build a temple at all. A threshing floor has to be a flat surface. Right. That's where you thresh the wheat. So uh, we have to look for a flat place, and that certainly doesn't fit the bill. Because that's where it, it says uh, that uh, Solomon's Temple was built on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So you say there is a place where there's a flat surface like a threshing floor. Why is that significant? Well, yes, it's very significant because to the north, slightly to the north, still on the Temple Mount, mm-hmm. um, you have a, a copula, a little dome with about eight columns holding it up. It's an open dome. You know, there's no walls around it. And it covers an open surface from the Temple Mount, which is flat, the actual rock surface itself. And this dome is, has been called for, for centuries Kubit al-Alua, which means the Dome of the Tablets. It marks the spot where, according to tradition, the Ark of the Covenant containing the mosaic tablets was actually placed in the Holy of Holies. And the really important thing about this is if you go directly east from there, you come to the eastern gate, the golden gate of the Temple Mount. That all seems to fit far better to me. Mm. If you go for east from the Dome of the Rock... There is no gate there in in the east side of the Temple Mount. So it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And Solomon's Temple and Herod's Temple would have fit on this place if the center of the Holy of Holies is where this dome is located, the Kubat al-Alua, the Dome of the Tablets. So to me, if you shift the temple to there, then you're on a winner. 
Also, mm. uh, the description of the temple is being located closer to the northern side of the Temple Mount than the center or the south. So it suggests that if you're looking at the Temple Mount today, the platform itself, it can't be where the Dome of the Rock is because that's closer to the south than it is to the north. It must be somewhere located north of that. And this little dome there actually is on the spot. Now, in my own research, I came to the conclusion that a clear reading of John 19:16 indicates that Pilate delivered Jesus over to the chief priests and that they were the ones who led him to Golgotha. I discussed this in my recent article, Where Was Jesus Crucified?, which you can find in the show notes. But when I mentioned this to David Roll, he disagreed. Yeah, I wouldn't agree with that. I think that Pilate was the one who handed him back to the Sanhedrin, and they handed him back to the Romans again, as far as I know. Is it your understanding that when the Romans took over, they continued using the Jewish execution site? I think they must have done. But there's also uh, laws and rules in in, uh, Roman law, which will be applicable here. Mm. After all, it was the Romans who escorted Jesus to to the place of Calvary, the summit, the head, and supervised execution. And it's crucial, this, because there are two laws that were broken by Jesus and his followers according to Roman law which they may have put upon this execution. So I'll, I'll give you the two. The, the first one is from the Collectio Legum Nosiacum Romanicum. And it says this, An execution by crucifixion for enemies of the state should take place at the scene of the crime. Hmm. Now, where was the scene of the crime? Well, as far as I'm aware, it's when Jesus is coming from Bethany towards Jerusalem and he reaches the summit of the the Mount of Olives. He then climbs onto a donkey and he descends into the valley below and then enters the city. Now, he's proclaimed at that point as the Messiah, the king. And that would be a a, a breach of the law straight away. That would be his crime, that that the people were were proclaiming him as a a king at this point in time. Yeah, blasphemy was a high crime in those days. And the Jewish authorities say, stop your disciples from blaspheming. Exactly. So that's the, the place of the crime is therefore the Mount of Olives when he's descending down towards Jerusalem. Now, the second law is actually from the Acts of Pilate. It's, and this is what it says. It says, alternatively, an execution by crucifixion should took place at the scene of the arrest. Now, where was Jesus arrested? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Where's the Garden of Gethsemane? On the Mount of Olives. So you have these two Roman laws which suggest or point to the place where the execution should take place, which is on the Mount of Olives. So according to various passages in the Old Testament, if we are to locate the Jewish execution site, those who violated the law of Moses in a high-handed way were to be taken outside the camp to be executed. And that's the same language we find concerning the sacrifice of the red heifer, which was, you know, something like 2,000 cubits east of the tabernacle. And according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a text which clearly identifies the Jerusalem temple as the equivalent of the tabernacle and that they had identified a place outside the camp of Jerusalem for the red heifer sacrifice. Where was that location? Well, here we go again, you see. The temple itself is an exact model of the original tent of meeting that Moses set up Mm -hmm. in Sinai. Okay, And the sacrifice of the first red heifer, as you say, was 2,000 cubits to the east of that tent, the shrine, if you like. So it's about 900 meters in, in our language today. So if the temple was located where I said at this little dome here, uh, on the north side of where the Dome of the Rock is today, and you go 900 metres due east of that, you pass through the Golden Gate, and you end up at the summit of the Mount of Olives. 
So that's where the site of the red heifer sacrifice was in the time when the temple was built as well. And there was a causeway linking from the eastern gate of the, of the Temple Mount across the Kidron Valley to this location for the sacrifice of the red heifer. So it's like almost like Jesus' crucifixion is taking place at the same place as the red heifer. And the red heifer, of course, was the, for the atonement of sin. And that's exactly also what Jesus was doing. So it seems appropriate, totally appropriate, for the Red Heifer site to also be the site of the crucifixion. What's interesting about this is that according to numerous Old Testament passages, those who violated the law of Moses in a high-handed way were to be taken outside the camp to be executed at the same location of the Red Heifer sacrifice. In Numbers 35-33, we're told that the blood of murder pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made except by the blood of the one who shed it. In other words, execution itself was thought of as a kind of atonement that served to purify the nation, which had become defiled by the transgression. Now in the first few verses of Numbers 19, we read this concerning the red heifer sacrifice. Quote, Tell the people of Israel to bring a red heifer without defect, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle the blood toward the front of the tent of meeting. Now, one of the Dead Sea Scroll texts indicates that in Second Temple Judaism, there was a location near the Jerusalem temple that was referred to as the place outside the camp. Quote, We have determined that the sanctuary is the tabernacle, Jerusalem is the camp, and that outside the camp, is outside Jerusalem, where they take the ashes for the altar and burn the sin offering. According to the Talmud, this location was used for sacrifice as well as execution. Quote, the place of stoning is outside the temple court, outside the camp. Just as the burning of the bullock is an atonement for the high priest and the whole congregation, stoning likewise is an atonement for the malefactor. In both cases, the leading outside the camp occurs in order to take life, that of the blasphemer, and that of the sacrifice yet to be slaughtered. What's fascinating is that all this matches the kind of language we find in Hebrews 13 concerning the death of Jesus. Quote, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Well, finally, the Mishnah, which is the oldest part of the Talmud, tells us precisely where this place outside the camp was located in the days of Jesus. Quote, the priest who burns the red cow stands at the top of the Mount of Olives. We are looking at the Mount of Olives as the Rosh, the head, where all this took place. And the significance of it in so many ways, theological and also from a point of view of law. For the Romans, of course, you plonk your crucifixion right by the side of a road so right. people can see the victim on the cross. And this is on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem. And of course, if you're standing on the top of that summit there, you're looking straight towards the eastern facade of the temple where the curtain was hanging, right. which then tore asunder. So it's all there in this one location. You know, the other thing about the Mount of Olives location is that it's a place known for its gardens and its olive orchards. And John's gospel says that in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a tomb 
In other words, the language there that's used seems to me to indicate that this isn't just a small crucifixion mound, but that it's a district or an area because in Golgotha, there was a garden and that word garden can be translated orchard, plantation, estate. It's a it's a wide area. So it seems to, again, fit the top of this district rather than a small crucifixion mound to the west of the city. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And we have also the point where Jesus ascended to heaven is also mount, uh, on the Mount of Olives there. We have the shrine dedicated to the ascension there as well. You say there's a first century tomb somewhere near there. There is. If you go to Paternoster Church in Bethphage, which is on the summit, you, you can if you look from Jerusalem, you can see the tower of the church sticking up on the, mm-hmm. on the summit peak itself, which is due east of the temple, absolutely in one straight line. There is a, a garden around this church, and in that garden there is a tomb, and the tomb has a big circular rolling stone Hmm. that covers the entrance. It's from the first century AD, so it fits perfectly. This is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that was given for Jesus' burial, an unused tomb, and it dates from the first century AD, and it has a great rolling stone that covers the entrance. Everybody goes and visits the garden tomb or goes to the Holy Sepulchre, neither of which are really good candidates for this. And here we have perhaps the the irony of all ironies, the very tomb of Jesus, hiding away in this beautiful garden at the back of the church. I mean, it's not visited at all. Um, And it's about... 50 to 100 yards away from where the execution site would have been. As I was interacting with critics of the position you and I are advocating, I ran across a writer who argued that locating Golgotha on the top of the Mount of Olives was implausible because surely one of the gospel writers would have mentioned this fact since they frequently tell us when Jesus has gone to the Mount of Olives. How would you respond to an objection of that kind? Well, the evidence is there in the text, isn't it? We, we, first of all, the name is associated with Rosh, the head. That's one thing. The second thing is it has to be outside the city, mm-hmm. and it has to reflect, I think, the place of sacrifice as well, which was east of the temple. So all these things make absolute sense to me. And look where the, the Jewish people are buried today. Right. They're on the Mount of Olives, waiting to re-enter the temple through the eastern gate. You know, that is how it all fits together. I just think that kind of objection misses the point because, you know, if Golgotha is a well-known location in that day, it would sort of be like us referring to L.A. without mentioning California. It's, it doesn't need to be identified. <laughs> exactly. Exactly <laughs> correct. Now, that's my view. Now, during my recent conversation with Dr. Roll, we ended up discussing a variety of topics, some of which I'll be saving for future episodes. But one of the questions I asked him about relates to the identity of Theophilus, to whom Luke addressed his gospel. Don't forget what I told you last time we met. He says, I'm an Old Testament scholar, (laughs) and this is a hobby. Exactly correct. So I'm no expert at it, but I'm fascinated by early Christianity. On Theophilus, there is an interesting thing. You know, Josephus mentions Theophilus as one of the high priests who reigned from sometime around 39 to 41 A.D., But mostly when you read all the scholars, including evangelical scholars, they refer to Theophilus as maybe some kind of a, you know, Gentile ruler somewhere sometime. But what's interesting is at the end of the Gospel of Luke, you have witnesses to the resurrection and to the empty tomb, and one of them is Joanna. And if you look at the way the story is related, Joanna is essentially at the focal point of a chiasm which as I'm sure you're aware, basically she's at the center point of the structure of that passage. And so what's odd is that this relatively obscure character, for some reason, appears to be the central witness in Luke's narrative. 
So mm-hmm. why would she be so significant? Well, you look at Luke 8, and she is the wife of Cusa, who is described as the epitropos of Herod. Joseph is described as the epitropos of Pharaoh. He's the right-hand man. He's the prime minister. Okay, yeah. so that mm-hmm. means that Joanna would have to be highborn. Well, it turns out in 1986, there was an ossuary discovered with the name Joanna, the granddaughter of Theophilus the high priest. Wow, I didn't know that. And so if this is the person described, that would make sense that she would be central to Theophilus as an eyewitness to these events and that she's a crucial witness for him. And that would at least give plausibility to why a person like Joanna would be giving to Jesus out of her means. What do you think about all that? I just say, wow, that's very, that's very impressive. None of that was familiar to me. So I, I'm very impressed by that. And I'm learning more from you than I normally would do from most interviewers. So uh, that's great. I, I plan on writing this up at some point. I'm just, it's one of these things, you know this, when you study something, you just have to share it with everybody. And the, this research is just, you know, when you connect the dots, what you find is it's real history and the real characters. And and just like you say, when you pull at the threads of, say, the time of Joseph or the time of Moses, what you get is is something that's tangible and real and concrete. You said the word, very important word, you said plausibility. Mm. History, when you reconstruct history, and remember that history is not actually what happened, the past. It's actually what we interpret as our best interpretation of what yeah. happened, right? And the more plausible a history is, the more likely it is to be correct or accurate. And I think that's where we're, we are agreeing here. You know, my work in the Old Testament is more plausible when it, we place Joseph in the Middle Kingdom and yeah. we place the, the conquest in the, towards the end of the Middle Kingdom and you put the great kings of David and Solomon in the Late Bronze Age as opposed to the Iron Age, which is the, the period of high trade Late Bronze Age. That's when you would expect to have a merchant prince like Solomon there. So, and, so the evidence is very plausible if you reconstruct history, the timeline of the Old Testament. Now we get to the New Testament, of course. We're talking about much more finer details right. here. But we've got far more evidence in the Gospels than we have in the Old Testament for this particular narrow period of time, a lifetime, effectively, of one individual, Jesus Christ, you know. It's, it's his lifetime is encapsulated in the, in the four Gospels, uh, whereas the Old Testament is thousands of years. I mean, that's a, a much, much longer period yeah. of time. And therefore, you've got far more detail to work with, and you've probably got better archaeology too in that respect as well. So when you're talking about these things that you've been working on, which I'm not familiar with, I can understand now how much more plausible the original narratives are about Jesus's life when you put all this together. Are you sure you're still an agnostic? Well, I'm not an agnostic about all this. Uh, I think, you know, I'm, I, there's a theological issue here and there's a right. historical issue. Yeah. And as a historian and a chronologist, it's the history that fascinates me. Yeah. And uh, I'm delighted when Christian believers take this material and if it reinforces their faith, I am delighted by that. I'm very pleased by that. I'm still on the, on the rocky road, as it were. So for me, I, you know, the difference between theology and history is still a divide. Um, but I think the history supports the theology. As an agnostic, I don't believe it's the Word of God. I think it's inspired by writers who were inspired by Jesus and Yah, Yahweh. Maybe some of it is exaggerated. Maybe some of it is hyperbole. Who knows? Would you argue that some things are embellished? Like, how would you, as an agnostic, interpret the resurrection? Wow. 
Now that is a deep question, deep theological question. Well, I'm just thinking historically here. Like, what what happened yeah. if it's not a resurrection? Then what did happen? Oh dear, you want me to get into controversial stuff now, don't you? Okay. Well, this is not my idea, but it has been advocated in the past, and that is that um, Jesus's death on the cross was very quick. He suffered for three hours practically, so not not much more than that. And then you have the story of the sponge on the spear being pressed to his his lips and, and nostrils. Some people have argued that that is a drug, which brings a, a comatose state of the body, that he was then removed from the cross before sunset, so he didn't have his legs broken, like most people would on the cross would be if they had to be you know buried before sunset. So to quote Monty Python again, he got better. <laughs> Yeah, well, he might have got better. That's not my idea, but that has been suggested. All right. Um, and so resurrection doesn't come into it then. It just simply means revival. Just a quick note to let you know that at some point in the not-too-distant future, I'm planning on recording an entire episode that walks through all the various objections to Christ's resurrection that have been presented over the centuries, including this idea that Jesus merely fell into a coma and revived on Easter Sunday. If you'd like to read up on that topic now, I've included a link in the show notes to an article published some years ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which surveyed all the details related to Christ's crucifixion and concluded that the evidence is clear. Jesus really died. But as I said to you, it's a hobby of mine rather than a research. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like I'm on as firm ground as I should be as I am with the Old Testament. But uh, anything to do with early Christianity, the life of Christ, um, the stories in the Old Testament, for me, are, are fabulous, wonderful stories. It's no wonder that the Bible is the most published book in the world yeah. and, and has been in all history. And I just find it remarkable. Folks, you've been hearing from Dr. David Roll, author of Exodus, Myth, or History, and Legendary Kings. And Dr. Roll, thanks so much for being my guest once again on the Humble Skeptic Podcast. My pleasure. Well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. As I mentioned earlier, if you'd like to read further on this topic, I recently released an article titled, Where Was Jesus Crucified? that you can find linked in the show notes. So if you'd like to check these things out for yourself, I've got lots of references there in the footnotes to passages in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and host of biblical passages for you to explore. If you're interested in traveling to Jerusalem and taking a tour of the Top of the Mount of Olives, along with hosts of other sites throughout the land of Israel, let me know in the comments section of this episode. Right now, I'm simply gauging interest for a trip of this kind as I make plans for the next couple of years. Also, as Dr. Roll mentioned the last time he was on the program, the subject of the true location of Golgotha would make for a great documentary project, and if someone you know has the ability to make that happen, please share this episode with them. The next episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast likely won't drop until sometime later this month as I take some time off to celebrate Passion Week and Easter, and the week after that, I'll be working on my taxes. I just started my own business, and I have no idea what I'm doing. So until then, I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Our lives.